Hey everyone, it's Jenna. We are working on an episode about the social and democratic context for the protests taking place around the U.S. following George Floyd's death, and we'll have that for you on Monday. But in the meantime, um, we wanted to share some episodes from our archives that we hope can provide some helpful context for this current moment and also uh, amplify some voices that we think are worth hearing and worth supporting right now. And one of those is Aaron Mabin, who is a former Penn State and NFL football player who now works as an artist, educator, activist, organizer, many other hats Aaron wears, um, but all in his hometown of Baltimore, which is where I traveled to interview him in August of 2019. Aaron has been a tireless advocate for Baltimore's black community long before protests over George Floyd's death uh, hit the city, and his work will continue long after those protests ends, whenever that might be. Um, He believes that the hard work of democracy happens when the cameras and the outsiders go away and community members can be empowered to fight for the change that they want to see. He also seeks to motivate people and move people through his art and his work as an art teacher in some of the city's most underfunded schools. So um, we think that this conversation with Aaron is is well worth listening to or even revisiting uh, if you heard it when it first came out last fall. And also our colleagues in the Bellow Collective have put together uh, an amazing list of podcasts that specifically confront racism in America. Um, We will link to that list in the show notes and we hope that you check it out. Aaron, thank you for joining us on Democracy Works. Thank you for having me. So um, I'm going to talk today all about your art activism work. But um, before we get to that, I think people may recognize your name from your time either playing football at Penn State or in the NFL. Um, I can't think of two more different universes than professional sports and the, the, the work that you're, you're doing now here in Baltimore. Can you talk about what that transition was like and, and how you came to find your voice as an activist? The transition was, um, it was a whole journey in and of itself, but I'd be doing it a disservice if I didn't act like from the beginning, you know, my work here in the city of Baltimore wasn't always a big priority for me. Um, I started my foundation in 2009, my rookie year, before I even got drafted. But um, even growing up here in the city of Baltimore, you know, um, from growing up in a family that was really rooted not just in the church, but in, you know, doing community work, community service, grassroots organizing, my father being an organizer of men and um, somebody who, from a community level, always wanted to see change and be a part of that change, um, really kind of groomed me into the man that I've become. But um, it did come to a point in my career where I realized that um, I was at like a crossroads moment. And I kind of felt as though at this point, if I'm going to become the type of athlete that I always envisioned myself being, I'm going to have to take a step back from the art, from the community stuff, from the writing, from all of it, and just focus this all of my energy completely on 
the game, my body, my regimen, all of that kind of stuff. And then on the other side of the, the coin, if I was going to really have the kind of impact in my community that I wanted to have, really um, touch and impact people's lives in the way that um, I saw myself being able to do, I was going to have to step away from the game that I had loved my entire life, you know? So um, that was a, a, a big journey for me, but um, I definitely can't say that I regret the decision that I've made. I'm prouder now of the work that I'm doing and the impact that I'm having um, in people's lives and, you know, on my city um, in general. I'm prouder than that than anything that I ever did as an athlete. So, so tell us about your your teaching work and, and how that's, that integrates into to your, your organizing and your activism overall. I started my foundation, Project Mayhem, in um, 2009. And it's an arts-based foundation, but really um, most of the work that, that we've done has been centered in the arts, but also education. And, you know... Um, Obviously, with me being an artist, that was something that I've always been passionate about. And a year and a half before I was drafted, there were major budget cuts in the city of Baltimore um, in the school system. And basically, their budget was cut in, in half, essentially. And the first programs usually that are cut when a school faces funding issues like that are typically your arts and music programs, unfortunately. So um, what we did with my foundation is we started going into certain schools that were under that um, under that category and um, uh, supplementing those workshops and curricula ourselves. So I was doing art workshops and programming at schools all across the city um, starting in 2009. Um, by 2010, 2011, I realized how naive I was as like a 20 year old rookie coming into the league thinking that like this contract that I'm going to get is going to be enough for me to like fix all the problems in my city. Like it, it sounds crazy to say, but you're when you're that young and ambitious and all of that kind of stuff, you're really ignorant enough to believe that you're going to be able to, to, to do that yourself. Yeah, well, you know? but, but if you hadn't had that, that grand vision, you know, I wonder what, how, if, how that would have impacted where you ended up. You yeah, know? yeah, that's a, to that point, that's a, that's, a good, that's a good point to bring up. But, you know, um, when I came to the understanding that essentially I did not have the resources, I didn't have the funding, I didn't have any of the things necessary to um, – fill in that gap for all of the schools that fell under that umbrella at that point in time. Um, the lion's share of my time, energy, and resources then shifted to um, advocacy and um, the grassroots organizing around those issues to see funding um, uh, uh, brought to these schools in other ways that could ultimately be um, devoted to, you know, the arts and music programs. And I was still doing my workshops and programming and things like that, but I got that understanding of, you know, yeah, you can go and you can do a workshop at a school for two and three days. You know, you can go and you and the kids can have this amazing experience and these great breakthroughs, but at the end of this two to three day time, you go back to your life and they go back to the same business as usual environment that they had before you got there. So ultimately, everybody was giving me praise for the work that I was doing, but I didn't feel like anything was actually getting done. Sure. Um, so fast forward a few years, um, still working heavily on, you know, the advocacy and um, legislative policy side of things. But 
not really seeing the kind of um, progress that I wanted to see. Um, so many things I would see and have a problem with. And, you know, you tweet about it, you show up at town halls and meetings and you raise hell and, you know, you talk about it on, you know, different news programs and everything, but nothing really happens, you know. And I got to the point where I was a little bit fed up and I, at this point, had retired and had been, you know, doing my artwork and community organizing full time for about like a year, year and a half. So um, at that point, I had already been doing workshops and programming at different schools around the city, but there was no organized kind of effort behind it. There was no concrete um, program that was established that um, we could really get the kind of quantitative data that allows you to be able to show people how viable it is. So I made a decision. I said, you know, you can only really sit on the sidelines for so long um, talking about how bad something is until it's actually time to roll up your sleeves and get your own hands dirty fixing the problem. So I said, all right, I've got to find a school, one school that I can plant myself in and actually hammer out this curriculum and see over the course of a year, two years, you know, what we can accomplish with the same group of kids over an extended period of time. Now we're finishing up my third year uh, teaching. You know, so I've been with the same group of kids. I've seen kids leave my school that are in middle school now. I've seen kids go from, you know, kindergarten that are now getting ready to go into their fourth and fifth grade years, you know. So um, that was really important, you know. And once I got in that position, it really just opened everything up, you know. Um, lesson, lesson planning wise, I was able to really um, introduce some dynamic um, methods of, of educating and interacting with them that they had never been exposed to before. And on the flip side of it, some of the um, deficiencies that uh, were present in the school building before I got there in the actual area, we were able over this, we've been able over that amount of time to address. And not everything is perfect or fixed or anything like that. But since I've gotten there, you can actually see the progress that we've made. And that's the thing that, you know, really gets me excited about doing this work now, because you can actually see the fruits of your labor on a daily basis. Sure. Um, and, and this, this I think, speaks to something that you talk about in your book, Art Activism, which is the difference between activism and, and organizing. You yeah. touched on it on yeah. it somewhat before when you're talking about the difference between tweeting and going on the news yeah. versus actually getting in there and getting your hands dirty. Yeah, so, I mean, we, we live in a time where everybody wants to be trending. You know, if there's a topic that's trending, everybody wants to weigh in on it. If there's a situation that goes viral or um, that gets a certain amount of national attention, everybody wants to weigh in. But at the end of the day, like, how much do you really think this tweet is getting? A, you know what I mean? Like, I can tweet, I can tweet about you know Flint not having water all day, but unless I'm actually got boots on the ground up there that I'm sending water to, that I'm advocating for, that. I know that this petition that I'm signing is something that this whole community is behind. You know, like we're we're doing what we feel like is the work. And that's the self-gratification part of it. You know, when you can tweet and you get a bunch of retweets and everybody's saying, yeah, that's right. You know, but where's the follow up to that? You know what I mean? Like once we tweet, once we march, once we raise hell, where is the follow up that actually gets the legislative policy changes that we say that we want? 
Where's the accountability that we talk about not being there? You know, how are we going about getting these things that are kind of becoming like sound bites to everybody that consider them considers themselves to be an activist or all of these social justice warriors on uh, Twitter and IG, which I'm not coming against these people because it all of these things have their place. And it's like without without, you know, uh, talk taking place on social media, you don't have as much attention around these issues. My thing is, once we have attention, what are we doing with that attention? How are we leverage? How are we leveraging this attention towards finding solutions, usable solutions to whatever the problems may be? And I think that sometimes people get lost after the part where you tweet or you march or, you know what I mean? Like, like, like you, you, you show up and you protest like what follows the protest? Yeah. And I think what what oftentimes follows is a, is, is a lot of long, hard hours, hard work, slow meetings, slow change. Um, so how the cameras on. Around for that, yeah. Though. Yeah. So, so how um, how did you learn to to navigate those processes you you mentioned public policy a couple of times so you know navigating the the bureaucracy and all the different personalities and like the the power grabs and and all those kind of things you just have to educate yourself and and that's something that you know it's not really the sexy answer to a question like that but it's the answer that everybody needs to hear you know um you can't just be on social media and you know follow CNN or you know MSNBC you know and think that you're up on, you know, what's going on politically. You can't just watch the news and think that you're, you're informed on what's happening politically. You know, we no longer teach civics in school anymore. You know, so when you're just talking about people's civic responsibilities, most people don't have an understanding of what they are and what that even means. So when you talk about voting, when you talk about um, actually showing up to city hall and, you know, city council meetings and um, even your local district, um, how involved are you in local politics, which is much more important than, you know, national politics. You know, I always say state before federal, you know, because what happens in your city, what happens in your state is going to impact you tomorrow. Oh, sure. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like you need to know what's going on locally in your political scene. And, and most of us don't. And I'm not saying that to come at any. I, I was I've been one of these people most of my life. And this is with connections to people through my father and, and other mentors of mine who were in the who were in the game. So if that's me, then, you know, your average person who never knew a politician or never was in any of these rooms definitely is behind the curveball. So we have to go about the process of educating ourselves as to not only like what our rights are, but how we go about changing unjust laws, how we go about combating systemic um, um, injustice when we see it um, and really understanding that it's about much more than just raising hell on the issue. The follow up has to be there. We have to have actual tangible steps that we're working towards and 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 processes and planning on how to get there. And that's usually where we end up dropping the ball. So um, and really, like, I, I'm I'm a better I'm a better example than that than most of that than most people, because, you know, I was a guy that, you know, when I was younger, um, used to brag about not voting. You know what I mean? Like, ah, this whole process is corrupt. This is this is this is that. You know, this this whole system is messed up. It's not for us. Like, I'm not going to vote. I'm not going to. I didn't even realize how ignorant about that, that that opinion was until I went and educated myself on what my civic duty and responsibility is and why me participating in that process is so important. You know, why 
the amount of people not voting is almost what allows unjust laws and unjust uh, um, social uh, uh, constructs to exist in the first place. You know, so once we have an understanding of that, we we move a little bit different. So, you know, as I went that, through that process of educating myself, I just try to pass that along. You know, I don't try to be stingy with knowledge once I get it. You know, I pass that along to the people that I mentor. I pass that along to my students that I teach. I pass that along to their parents sometimes because even, you know, some of our parents need to understand more about what their civic duty is. Sure, you know? sure. And, and you, you've also talked about the importance of, of having voices from the community at the table in terms of being in office, running for city council, holding holding these 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 types of offices. Do you think that um someone needs to be from a community in in order to to affect the greatest amount of change there or I guess is there I do. is is there you know a role I think for that, I think the greatest I, like you know I'm I'm a stickler for language. So if mm-hmm. you're saying the greatest mm-hmm. change, yeah, I do think that um a person that's going to create the greatest change is probably going to be a person that comes from there. You know, and that's not saying that um, great ideas can't come from outsiders and all of that kind of stuff, because sometimes you can get too isolated in your bubble. You know what I mean? But I think that too often the people that are in positions to make the, the decisions that really affect the lives of the people that live in these areas, the constituents that that truly need to to, to be represented, if you don't come from there and you're not even making the effort to connect with and understand these people, how can you say that you represent them? You know, and uh, I think that uh, too oftentimes we go for the polished and proper, you know, uh, uh, candidate that presents themselves as opposed to the person that we know, the person that we watched grow up, the person that we understood through their mat- their maturation process as an adult. And I think that um, more than anything, once we have a relationship with a person and you know that you can work with them, you know that they have an understanding of the issues that that they're advocating for, you believe in them. You know, you feel like, all right, I'm invested in this process because this person is invested in me. So what what role can people so say someone listening to this who lives in in California or even in in Australia or you know wherever it is across the U.S. or throughout the world they see what's happening the, you know things that concern them in in Baltimore or you know other places throughout the country what what role should or or could outsiders play do you think I don't think there's anything that? wrong with yeah. outsiders coming in and and sharing their resources. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I think the I don't have a problem with outsiders, you know, like that's my thing. It's like in Baltimore, we can kind of give that perception where like we don't like outsiders. What I'm I'm not anti outsider. I'm anti outsiders coming in and trying to be in leadership positions saying, all right, I'm going to come in and hood and save these disenfranchised poor folk. (laughs) You know what I mean? That don't know how to save themselves. It's like, no, these people know exactly what they need. But they need resources in order to get those things. So if you're a person with money, then donate some of your money to an organization that's already here that's doing great work. We don't need you to come in and create your own organization. You don't know what you're doing. You know what I'm saying? If you have a job, then if you have a plug on jobs, then let's reach out to some of the people in these disenfranchised communities and see how we can connect some of them to jobs or jobs training. You know, if you have a uh, uh, 
uh, connections business wise to loans or uh, to even people that can walk you through those early stages of entrepreneurship, then let's set up some mentorship opportunities and some apprenticeship opportunities. You know, you don't have to be the savior, you know, to do good work. And I think oftentimes we feel like, well, I have to create the foundation that's going to do this or I have to create the organization that's going to get this done. That organization already exists. And if somebody would actually support that organization, then the work that they were doing, that they're doing would be 10 times greater. But don't come here and tell me that you want to tell us how to to advocate for ourselves in legislative policy efforts like leaders of a beautiful struggle is already doing that so you can donate some to them and they'll do their thing don't come here and tell us that you want to work on you know reforming the police department you got no boundaries that's already doing that over here like support the work that they're doing because we in the community we know them we trust them we don't trust these outsiders that are coming in that are bringing outsiders <laughs> to hire them into these positions and then coming out, you know, handing out a couple waters on a hot day and, you know, asking you to sign up and, 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 and get their mailing, uh, their mailing letter. And then next thing you know, they're getting, you know, millions of dollars of, fun, of federal funding to do what this organization over here has been doing for 20 years. Yeah. Do you ever think you run for office? <laughs> nah. I get asked that every day, but that's not... That's I just I feel like I I feel like the work that I do is more effective because people know that that's not what I want. You know what I mean? Like you got every year you got 100 people that want to be mayor. You know what I mean? Like I just want to I just want to make my city better. Right. And at the end of the day, that requires me not having the best relationship with the mayor at that point in time. It might, you know, require me holding a couple of our people on city council accountable, you know, but. I'm in a very unique position where there are very few people that can exert any kind of power or control over me, you know. So if there's something I feel like needs to be said, I'm saying it. If there's something I feel like needs to be done, I'm doing it. I'm not worried about the consequences or repercussions because I'm not beholden to anybody. And I think that once you involve yourself in politics, regardless of how clean you try to keep yourself, that's just not a realistic, you know, it's not a realistic uh, perspective. Right. So let, let's switch gears and, and talk about art for, for a minute. Absolutely. Um, so podcasts are an inherently non-visual medium. <laughs> um, uh, for well, that we'll, we'll link to your book. For our in, social in media the, folks, the, if you Google Aaron Maven Art or, yeah. or, or hashtag it on any of your um, social media platforms, you should... You should see uh, a bunch of my stuff come up. Uh, yeah. I put out a lot of content, so yeah. you know it's pretty easy to find. Yeah, um, can you uh, to to the the best that you can try to um, describe your 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 aesthetic, kind of your your overall vision for your work, where that comes from? Honestly, I think the title of my book is what describes it best. You know, when you talk about art activism. Um, it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but to me. It means using multidimensional forms of art, whatever forms that may be, whether it be literature, whether it be poetry, whether it be music, whether it be visual art, whether it be photography, um, as a tool, you know, uh, as a weapon, essentially, to fight social justice battles, you know, um, understanding the power of narrative, understanding the power of the spoken word understanding that a picture says a thousand words, you know, and the impact that an image can have, the visceral impact that it can have on someone. How do you use that as a tool to educate people? You know, how do you use that as a tool to um, 
encourage and bring about empathy and understanding. You know, how do you use that as a tool to connect folk? Um, the analogy I like giving people is if I put a painting up on this wall right here, you know, and the, the three of us in this room, we stand around this painting. All three of us are going to see and feel something different that's specific to us, regardless of the fact that, you know, two of the people in this room are black and one is white, regardless of the fact that, you know, I'm from here, you're from here, you're from here. Like, we'll figure out that there's a million miles between your world and mine. But the space between us is the space that allows us to grow if we let it, you know. So I, I see art as an opportunity for me to make a loud, resounding statement and based on that statement to create conversation and dialogue around whatever the issue is. Um, so when I'm writing, when I'm painting, when I'm drawing, when I'm designing something, I'm doing it intentionally, you know, from the standpoint of trying to create dialogue and conversation that ultimately will bring us together. Because if I create artwork that you can't be lukewarm about, that you have to feel one way or another, whether you, I don't, I want you to love my work or hate it. I'm upset if you're indifferent to it, if you can just walk by it and not see or feel anything. But if you hate it, I did my job. If you love it, I did my job. Because now I forced you to stand on something. What do you believe? And if I'm dead wrong, why am I wrong? And if I'm right, then why am I right? You know what I mean? Like, but the conversation that comes from the artwork is what I'm trying to create in the content that I put out. We were talking earlier about um, how you see the the young people that that you're working with, and that's this kind of uh, movement that that's been happening for several years here in Baltimore as as being the start of of a new renaissance. Absolutely. Um, can Can you talk about where you see things going? Um, onward and upward. You know, uh, I definitely I think that. Being a student of history, I've always been a fan of, like, you know, different Renaissance periods um, in, in human history. Obviously, the Harlem Renaissance and, like, the black arts movement are probably, like, the two staples for me between, like, those two and, like, the black power movement um, that took place in, in the 60s and 70s. So as a student of how those movements were created, you know, I'd be a fool if I didn't if I wasn't able to sit back and realize, wow, like it's actually happening again, you know, on a daily basis, I'm surrounded by people who will be talked about for generations to come, you know, best-selling authors and um, nationally renowned um, dancers and poets and painters and art and, and, and rap artists and visual artists and photographers, you know, I can name the D. Watkins and the Devin Allens and the Kyle Yearwoods and um, the A1 Chops, the musicians and like, you know, the, the Moo Moo Freshes, the Easy e like uh, it's so many people that are just amazing, brilliant creatives and that are finally, after years of, of beating on their craft, um, getting national acclaim, you know, and being celebrated on those national stages. It's a lot different than when we were kids and somebody put, you know, Huckleberry Finn in our hands and expected us to really to feel that. Like, no, we're not feeling that. We we don't see ourselves in this. This isn't how we talk. This isn't our dialect. This isn't our surroundings. Like, we don't know this life that this author is trying to 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 to, to articulate. But the struggles, you know, um, the struggles breed some of the most amazing art. And you saw that in the Harlem Renaissance where, you know, black folks in Harlem were struggling. But, you know, out of that struggle came a beauty that, you know, to this day we still look back at in awe. 
And I think that you're seeing a lot of the same things taking place in Baltimore right now. And I count myself as, as privileged to be a part of that. Oh, for sure. So what... Um uh, what was, can you talk a little bit more about the, the process for developing that that curriculum? And, and did you receive any pushback from the school as you as from the the, the, the district or, yeah. or individual schools so, that you're trying um, to implement it? Yes and no. The big, the beautiful thing about um, well, I can't say that it's all beautiful. Mm-hmm. But one of the good things about Baltimore's school system is you know they do have site based budgets. So if a principal is feeling it. You know what I mean? Like, it's happening. I got tired of seeing it done the wrong way. You know, um, every few years we we dress up the same the same curricula that, you know, has existed for years as something different, you know, and, and you know, f- spoon feed it back to our kids like they can't tell that it's the same old leftovers from a couple days ago. You know what I mean? And... It's not hitting them. It's not It's not reaching them. They don't see themselves in it. They don't feel affirmed by it. They don't have an understanding of, of how it's really going to affect and shape their lives. And in the curriculum, I walk the educators through how to facilitate the dialogue and the discussions that come from the questions. And there's some hardball questions in there. It's stuff that um, we're introducing at a middle and a high school level and even an elementary school level in some cases that I wasn't forced to wrestle with until I was in college or a grown man outside of college. You know, so my question to myself as I was creating it was, what would it look like to have a generation of youth that were even more socially, economically, spiritually, intellectually competent than even we were at their age? You know, how do we start to introduce these ideas of injustice, uh, uh, racism, sexism, patriarchy, you know, all of these things that are big issues to us as human beings. But as adults, most of us are already behind the eight ball because we've been incubated in a society that never attacked these things at a, at a, at a root level at an early age. But what if we could facilitate these discussions in a safe space in our schools, you know, with educators that are socially competent enough to really understand what these kids are going through and really force them to become critical thinkers and to become the architects of their own solutions. You know, um, so I created the curriculum about a year and a half ago and we were able to uh, implement it at um, my school and several schools uh, across the city early on. And now um it's really picking up. Yeah, that's that's so smart. I feel like there's there's so many places even outside of schools where where this this Absolutely. this type of this type of approach could could work. Um, so we we talked at the very beginning about civics education. If if you were going to put together a similar model for introducing or perhaps reintroducing the you know civics education kind of in this same model, what what types of things would you? Would we're you actually include? in the process of doing that right oh, now. Wow. So it's some. It's some stuff that I can't necessarily speak on at the moment, but um, we've got a lot of civic engagement um, um, projects that we're about to roll out, especially coming into this election year. It's really important that um, more than any more than any time period that we've ever lived in, this is the time not for us to be advocating for anybody to vote for a particular candidate, but for us to be educating each other about what that process is, how you actually, you know, organize around the issues that we want to see changed and lobby to make sure that whoever's in office has to do what their job is and what's necessary to see those changes through. So I see it as being a situation 
uh, where we have to go district by district throughout the whole city and actually have informative sessions that walk people through different steps of the civic engagement process. Like, how do we make sure that the trash gets picked up in our neighborhood? How do we make sure that um, that this grievance that we have with this officer who's always here um, persecuting our young boys on the corner, you know, uh, hold him accountable? How do we make sure that our schools are actually uh, getting the, the funding and the attention and the resources that they need in order for our students to be successful? All of these things are things that we can be working on on a daily basis in our communities. Um, and we do have people that are that are working on these um, very issues every single day. But if the entire city, if if every single community had a real understanding of what they can do on a day to day basis, even if it's just making sure that they're calling their politicians every single day to make sure that their grievances are recorded and documented. I, I have one last question for you. Um, <clears throat> what does democracy mean to you? To me, democracy is a beautiful idea, but it's an idea. And with any idea, you have to work constantly, constantly to manifest it. And even once some of that work is done and you feel like progress has been made, the beauty of de of democracy is we have to go back and we have to continuously self-evaluate and see if we're on the right side of history. And I think that... Um, the more that we have a true understanding of, of what democracy is, um, the better the better Americans will all be. Yeah, that that is that's a great note to end. I can think of no better example of someone who is both doing the hard work and self reflection and you know putting it all together and helping others do the same thing. So, Aaron, thank you very much for for your time today and for joining us on Democracy Works. Thank you for having me. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.